Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode. The Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Hello, Noah, from a very tired household. We uh, we recently got a puppy, and let me tell you, it's like having a newborn around to, get up <laughs> to let him out and get up early to make sure that he doesn't pee in his crate. And it's been uh, been a little bit tiring. Okay, so I have to ask. I have I have I have put forward that dogs are or that that children are easier to care for than dogs. Like if you have a new baby and you have a new dog, the dog is more work than the new baby. True or false? Uh, I don't know. It's pretty close because you can slap a, a diaper on a baby and just <laughs> get to it when you can. Right. Uh, you know, whereas a dog's just going to pee at your feet. But at the same time, uh, I find the dog pitiful and a baby's cry is is annoying, mm. especially in the middle of the night. So it's toss up. I think there's signs behind that. I think it's the like the the particular frequency that babies cry at is supposed to do something to get under our skin so that we are you know motivated to go fix whatever the problem is i mean i could definitely buy that after having had two kids and you know <laughs> uh my my niece and nephew you know being two and three years old so yeah we've we've been through it a little bit have you automated anything with for the dog Hmm. I mean, insofar as we're teaching him tricks, like that's an automation of of a type. But no, um, we're we're thinking about getting like a button that he can push to let us know that he wants to go out. But we haven't gotten there yet. We're okay. afraid he's going to eat it. Yeah. Well, I'll be interested to see what what you're able to do with that. I had a friend who he had his camera system set up. The problem was dog would go out in the backyard to use the, the bathroom and then he'd have to go clean it up and wouldn't know where the dog had been. And so he trained his camera to recognize his dog's signature squat <laughs> and it would and then it would generate a map for him of like here's where you have to go do your work outside and worked pretty well wow that's the thing yeah no i think we're going old-fashioned and just like <laughs> making his tether be in a specific spot so okay well as the automation progresses as uh, as the dog unit uh, becomes more uh, forked or modified or whatever Keep us in the loop. Will do. All right, let's get to some feedback. Our first email comes in from Christy. Christy writes in and says, hey, guys, I want to call in, but I keep missing the show due to life. So here's an email. I wrote in a few weeks ago about a caller who was having an issue with his Kubuntu install, mounting and playing videos directly from a NAS Samba share. Noah is having the issues with VS Code. I'm saving it to a Samba share and asking him to overwrite the file that he just opened. I found your answer, and it's... Kubuntu's fault. Kubuntu 2004 or Kubuntu 2010 does not have the FIO Fuse installed, which is what I'm using in Arch, which allows us to work seamlessly. Keo Fuse requires Fuse 3, but doesn't work in Ubuntu because they froze Fuse 2. Ubuntu has too many things that rely on it, and you can't have Fuse 2 and Fuse 3 installed at the same time. So you're stuck. Here's a Reddit thread that explains it better, and he links to a Reddit thread that explains it better. Thanks, guys. DeLuca. So the short version here is, and I think this is going to be a theme throughout the show tonight, you'd be better off with Arch if you didn't want this problem. Steve, is that an accurate summation of this email? Well, I mean, from from this standpoint, yes, because Arch doesn't have the same dependencies that, that Canonical as a company is choosing to hold on to for various business reasons. I find this problem kind of frustrating and I find it kind of irritating that whatever it is that relies on Fuse 2, we can't fix and get to a place where I can browse Samba shares and use them like I would on literally every other operating system, right? Windows doesn't exhibit this behavior. Mac OS doesn't exhibit this behavior. 
And truthfully, Linux doesn't exhibit this behavior, but because of the way a particular distribution is set up, there are people walking around the earth that just believe that Linux doesn't handle Samba mounts correctly. I mean, from one perspective, you can think of it like that. The other perspective is this is a... um a spin or a, a, you know, a community distribution as it were. Mm. And Ubuntu canonical is choosing to put their weight behind a different desktop like GNOME. Um, and because of that, this is a non-issue for the main Ubuntu distribution, because like I said, they, they're probably using uh, GVFS. Mm. So, I mean, at, at some point as a company, you have to make the decision like, you know, we've got 3 million users here and, 10,000 users there, maybe this is not such a big issue. Fair enough. Yeah, so if you just go to Ubuntu.com and download the distro, what you're going to get is GNOME, and that doesn't have this issue. So it's only if you start getting esoteric and into the weeds that you come across problem children. I wouldn't even say esoteric, right? Because I don't want to downplay um, KDE's importance in the ecosystem. It's more Mm -hmm. that the company has gotten behind GNOME as their main desktop, and so because of that, that's where their focus is going to be. That's fair. Well, uh, for now, I I guess I'll just have to suffer through. But I tell you what, it's making me reevaluate my decision to to stick on Kubuntu. And that's twice as true after uh, the the problems I had today trying to run the latest version of Ansible. Our second email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, good day, everyone. I disagree with Steve. I don't find Steve actually able to handle full unrestricted free speech. He seems to refuse to talk about certain topics, groups, and ideas. I don't find Musk as a viable solution. He is on board with WEF, Sustainable Agenda 2030, pushing tiny homes, electric cars, and brain chips. The refusal to be honest and call out things is why we have so many problems. Respect is earned. It's not automatically given. You can be respectful, a.k.a. nice and considerate, but respect is also higher in the high-trust, low-crime society, town, nation, or community. Refusing to talk about traits, race, religion, gender, and who subverts corruption is one of the reasons that we're in this mess. Charlie, so Steve, do you hate free speech? Oh, of course. I mean, from if anybody listened to me last time, I totally hate free speech. No, free speech doesn't mean that I have to engage with you in your topic. You are perfectly... Like you're perfectly allowed to go and stand on the corner and say whatever it is you like. I do not have to stand around and listen to you saying whatever it is you like. I also don't have to choose to engage with you. If there's a topic that I don't particularly want to talk about um, because various reasons, like either I know it's not going to go somewhere or I don't care that much, which is probably more likely to be the answer if I'm not willing to engage on something. uh, There's, No, like that, that doesn't mean that I, I hate free speech or any of those sorts of topics. I don't have to engage with you. There's free speech doesn't mean everyone must. It's everyone can. Mm. And so in the context of this, uh, there was a bunch of people in the post show that we were chatting about some stuff and I felt that it was going outside of the bounds of what Ask Noah set up to do, you know, kind of technical talk and stuff like that. And so essentially I just stopped engaging with the topic. And so that's, that's what Charlie here is referring to. And within the bounds of the show, I don't think that's a wrong approach. You know, we're, we were here, we're here to gather and talk about Linux and it doesn't matter what your political views are because this is the topic. Every, every Thursday I get together with a developer from Mycroft and he and I, do not at all see eye to eye on politics. Mm. But you know what? We have a great time. We enjoy our our time together and we work well together. We do we're doing paired programming right now and it's fantastic. But Doesn't you're focusing I... on Mycroft though. You're focusing exactly. on the technical thing. We're in bounds of on that conversation. Mm. He knows where I stand, I know where he stands and you know, free speech doesn't mean that I should yammer at him just because he doesn't want to like he he we're here to do a thing about Mycroft, not talk about politics. And in this case, at Ask Noah Show, sometimes it crosses into some political bounds a little bit. But this, we, we ended up going a little too far afield for what I felt was appropriate for our audience. And mm. so I, I said, you know, if we were talking in, in Unfilters chat room or whatever, like, have at it. So that that's just a, a thing that I wanted to address here. All right. 
But to be clear, you don't hate free speech. <laughs> I think that the the libertarian in me is very much, you know, stay in my bubble. And that is just how I react to the world. You are absolutely welcome to shout at the top of your lungs in your bubble. As soon as your bubble tries to convince <laughs> me or compel me to do something, that's when we have a problem. Can I talk to you about Matrix? <laughs> okay, our third email. <laughs> <laughs> you can go ahead. I'm just going to take my headphones off. <laughs> our third email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hey, guys, pretty sure you've mentioned something like this before on the show. But let's get the 2022 take on it. Scenario. A medium-sized conference room. Let's say it seats 10. TV on the wall. TV has an HDMI input in the tabletop. We also have an analog line for the conference phone. I'd like an easy way for end users to join or host team and Zoom meetings while using the TV on the display content to remote participants and an in-room camera feed to the meeting. I've looked at a solution from Logitech, which is very slick, but also very pricey. Also, the, the one-tap join and the AV appliance could offer would be very helpful. Just lots of money. This room is used by upper management, so I'd want it to be sleek, simple, and functional. My easy budget solution was to add a small form factor PC with a webcam, but would love it if users did not have to sign into a PC and could easily invite the room as a resource when scheduling. This would be in a Windows environment with Active Directory emphasis on security, so an auto-login PC probably won't fly. Feel free to throw non-Windows solutions at me. I know you will! Users could currently do bring their own laptops to the room and run the meeting, but we have to have a place for the laptop at the front of the room so that the built-in webcam, that gets messy and it's inconvenient. Maybe I'm overthinking this. Any help is appreciated. Kevin. So, Steve, I'm going to start with you. Um, you kind of asked for something similar, and we did like kind of a home version of it. What do you think? How is your communication centers going? What things do you like about it? What things do you not like about it? Yeah, so to, to recap, I wanted to have an area for my kids where – uh, they could just basically, we installed Telegram and Skype and they can call their, their family and friends on, you know, we kind of curate their list so that they can't add anything. So they're not talking to some weirdo on the internet, but um, it's a place where they can go and just chat with people as they need to. And we didn't want to be uh, too much involved in that. So I came to Noah and said, well, what would you do? So essentially what we did is we got a, a touchscreen monitor and a small Intel Nook, and then we we got a a boundary microphone and a soundbar, and uh, a nice a nicer webcam. And essentially, they just go up and they touch the icons they want to touch and um, talk to the people they want to talk. And for the most part, it works really well. the The only thing that that we've had some struggle with is the keyboard. In the past, has been a little bit wonky. Um, in the most recent update of, of GNOME, it's been way better. Uh, it stays up and it does everything it needs to. But previous to that, it was kind of hit and miss whether you could get it to come up on the text, like on the text fields. So that's what we did. The sound is great. We get lots of people um, telling us that it sounds really good. It looks good. Um, we don't have any feedback issues or anything like that. So that's the comm center. So... Um, the PC-based solution, is, you know, is, is is what we went with in your house. There's there's essentially three ways that I would tackle this problem. So the, the first way is you buy, like, the industry go-to standard. So you go to something like a Polycom. Um, I've seen more and more Logitech stuff out there, but quite honestly, uh, what you're paying for is uh, part of – I guess I have a hard time answering that question, which is part of what rubs me the wrong way. Very nice microphone, very decent webcam, and designed to work with consumer-grade software. So that's your Zoom and Teams and all the things. If you go with like a Polycom or a Cisco system, um, that this is what's designed for doing large-scale web conferencing. What you get with a system like that is the ability to tie into professional PA systems so you can do things like voting. Let's say you have 10 conference participants all around a table. You would want... 10 microphones all the way around the table so you can hear each participant uh, clearly. But you might have a situation in where when the CEO talks, everyone else needs to shut up and we listen to what he has to say. So that's a priority speaker situation. So then you have a voting system where it says, what microphone is capturing the best audio for all of these people? Okay, and 
essentially works out to a one-to-one thing most of the time. When the CEO speaks, when the president speaks, when the director or leader of the meeting speaks, that microphone takes priority and it shuts everyone else down so that that person can speak. If you want those kind of features, you're really probably only going to get that with a uh, with a proper room, uh, with a proper setup uh, and, and, and a professional solution. And this is going to cost a decent amount of money. So I, I would have a budget prepared for that. Now, the good news is totally sidesteps uh, a lot of the issues that you're ta- thinking about, right? Because if you say to yourself, hey, I want it to be easy to use. Well, congratulations. It's going to be easy to use. If you say to yourself, well, I want them not to have to work real hard to get it to, you know, to sign in, auto sign in. Well, you're not going to have to deal with any of that because it's all appliance based. The other thing you're going to get is the ability to tie in to, you know, directory services and stuff like that. So you just click on, you know, field office two and it connects everyone and all the things work. So uh, that's one option. Uh, second option is the PC-based solution, which is what Steve has in his house, and honestly, probably what I would do if I woke up in your shoes. So the advantage here is, and we've used this with decent success with lots of organizations that have very non-technical users, very high-level management, just have an expectation that they walk in and use it. And yes, we do put Linux on there, and no, nobody has complained yet. Uh, you... From the network side, you're going to segregate this conference PC from any of your internal office traffic. It doesn't need it. It just needs to get onto the Internet. And so that's a fairly trivial firewall thing um, to set up in, in your switch. Drop it on a VLAN where it just can get to the Internet and nothing else. Let it go that route. Uh, you sign into the conference PC. You put things like Zoom on there. We use Jitsi more and more because it's web-based. And so if conference participant has a Chrome web browser installed, they can just join, and they like that. Hangouts is pretty popular, though. Uh, Teams is pretty popular. Zoom is obviously pretty popular. Uh, And so you can install all of those and have that run on the conference PC. And then on the table, you just have a little wireless keyboard and mouse. And uh, Logitech makes a deal that has a little trackpad built into the side, then the keyboard that sits in the center of the table, and you're able to use that. Uh, At Steve's house... Uh, and what I would absolutely do in a conference room is we use something called a boundary mic. And a boundary mic is a microphone. A lot of times you'll see it on like an ice rink or a basketball court. If you ever wonder how they get the sneakers uh, squeaking as they move across a basketball court or you hear the stick contacting the ice or the puck, and this is all a boundary mic. And it's a small little flat microphone that picks up audio from all directions. So it's an ideal in a conference situation because you can put it in the middle of the table or around a collection of people that are talking and most people are going to be fairly well heard. Again, you want to get more specific to that. You're either hanging microphones out of the ceiling uh, and you're tying them to some sort of a voting system so that you can choose selectively which audio you're going to grab. Uh, but I have we've put a couple of those systems in for, for fair, like I say, fairly large organizations that use it on a, on a very regular basis. And I've yet to have anybody come to me and say, this isn't secure. And so we have a problem with it on our network. I've yet to have anybody come and say, it's too complicated. We can't figure out how to use it. Most people are fairly comfortable double clicking on the Chrome icon, double clicking on the Zoom icon, starting the, starting the conference up. And the flexibility that you gain over a PC with a PC based solution over one of the proprietary solutions. No, it's not quite as, you know, fancy to get you know to get connected and stuff like that it requires a little bit of manual labor but i've yet to find anyone that isn't capable of doing it and if anything uh covid solidified for that for us right people worked for almost a year through zoom and if you didn't i mean zoom became a household term so most people are pretty accepting of it so that's what i would go with i do not think you're overthinking this but uh I don't think I would spend the money on the Logitech thing either. It's going to be tied to some software that Logitech uses if you're wanting to use it any more than just a generic webcam and a microphone. And if you're just interested in a generic webcam and a microphone, you can get better quality stuff for less money. And I'll have some links for you in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, a question for you, gentlemen. Of course, I can search the Internet for the answer of this particular question, but I won't let simplicity and clarity that you guys can deliver from that search. Plus, your answers and explanations you are deeply rooted in your personal experiences. And a few listeners might find the answer handy, too. So without further ado, here's the question. Explain explain following network devices and their usage. Also tell whether they can 
be used interchangeably or not. A hub, repeater, bridge, switch, router, gateway, access point, and modem. I'll end this email by putting a spotlight on a command tool that isn't for everyone, but are those who are learning to play ukulele? This can be real handy. It's called Yukabox, and it shows you how to play a given chord on a ukulele by printing the chord chart in an ASCII art. It has support for different ukulele tunings and a link for Yukabox repo, and he includes that. So you can find that in the show notes. So, Steve, uh, this is not something that we covered in our introduction to networking, weirdly enough. Um, but, I mean, we touched some of this, but some of them we didn't. Yeah, I mean, some of these are kind of, uh, I don't want to say outdated, necessarily but things you're not actually going to run into in a day-to-day life like wait your house hub, doesn't have hubs in it no well, no that's what hub, repeater bridge um these those three you're not going to generally find in a in your day-to-day life you might find a device that can be in bridge mode mm. but you're not going to have an actual bridge in fact the only place i've ever seen bridges is in companies that that are working with with networking gear that are connecting two sites together, um, so um, at at a basic level, a hub is something like a switch, except that it sends out the same traffic out of all ports. And so, it used to be the poor man's way to do port mirroring is you go grab a hub and stick it on, you know, a, a port in between a device, and then plug your laptop in, and then you would get the same traffic that the other device was getting because the hub will just send the uh, a copy of all the traffic out all of its ports uh, and they're also i don't believe they make them a gigabit i believe they stopped at 10 100 so yeah. and i actually still carry one in my bag for that exact purpose there's multiple times where i don't have access to the switch to set up a mirrored port and if i'm trying to get an eye on what's happening traffic and I just want to see it right now with Wireshark. It's an easy way for me to pull a thing out of my bag, a couple patch cables, plug it in and say, okay, now make your VoIP call. Ah, here's why it's not working. The, the, yeah. the best way I, I like to think of a, a hub is you've seen the six-way power splitters that you plug into your house and it splits out into six, uh, six different power outlets. That's kind of what a hub is. It's literally just taking all the copper and plugging it all in together. Of course, the problem with that is we create what was known back in the day as collision domains, because if everything tried to talk at once, obviously there's a limited pipe. So what would happen is everything would back off into this random back off time, and then they would all try and talk again, and then you'd have a collision and the process would repeat. And so you would try to limit these collision domains to like three, four, five machines so that you didn't have... A, a lot of network collisions switches fix all of that because instead of just repeating all the traffic everywhere through all the ports all the time, only broadcast traffic is going out over all of the ports. And instead, only if a particular Mac address needs to hear that traffic is the traffic then sent out over that switch port. So I'll piggyback on that with an explanation of, of what a bridge does. So network bridges were, highly useful back in the day of hubs. So essentially what you would do is you would have a bunch of computers on a hub and then you'd stick a bridge between two hubs. And the bridge's job was to try and determine uh, which... So when you did this, that split split your ne- network into two segments. And so the idea of the bridge is that it worked on the OSI layer two to try and figure out which segment of the network the traffic was destined for. And it was used to do segregation of collision domains, exactly like Noah was talking about, which is part of the reason why you don't see bridges as a physical device anymore, because they're they're not really needed. Uh, you might still have some stuff uh, taken around, but as a general rule, um, that they, they're kind of outdated. Um, repeaters. Those are not necessarily outdated anymore, but because of the distance now that you can go with copper, um, repeaters are less used. So repeaters job is to make sure that it amplifies or regenerates a signal. So what happens is as a signal travels, it makes kind of like these U shapes. So it'll go up and then down and up and then down. And that's just the way that, that the signal travels over the wire. Once the signal goes a certain distance, it starts to attenuate so that you become shorter and shorter and shorter until the point where the packet can no longer be received because it's garbled. A repeater is placed somewhere along the line in order to uh, regenerate or strengthen that signal so that you can 
you can stretch the distance between computers uh, a, a greater distance. So these days, I we solve that problem one of two ways. One is we just put a switch and use it as a repeater. Um, the proper way, when I can get people to pay for it, is to just run fiber. And then you don't have to worry about it because you can run fiber almost unlimited distance. But, uh, but you know, there, there, there is an expense to that. And, 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 um, obviously there are some factors that come into can you do that or not. So, uh, switch can be useful. H- how about a gateway, Steve? Um, what's a gateway? Well, so in the software world, so you have a network gateway that is defined in your, uh, in your routing table on your computer. So it doesn't matter what type of computer you have. The what happens is if the computer does not know where to send a packet, it will send your packets out to the one that the gateway that is designated as the default. So I don't know where this goes. Throw it to some other device and let them deal with it. So that's the the purpose of the gateway is to figure out where other things are when you're interconnecting with primarily a different network. So a different subnet or going out onto the internet or traversing NATs, that's, that's tends to be what the gateway's job is, is to take a packet and figure out where it needs to go to its next hop to get to its destination. Sometimes referred to as the, the, the path of last resort or the gateway of last resort. Oh yeah. I haven't heard that term in a while, but yeah, absolutely. Um, you might think of that. The best way to think about your ISP is your ISP has a gigantic switch and they run cables out of their gigantic switch into your house and everybody plugs into it in between that switch realistically is a cable modem and a CMTS or cable modem termination system, basically the other end of a cable modem. And your ISP uses a a collection of CMTSs around your local area to get traffic back into their main switching center. And then it goes out over some big trunk uplinks to a bigger ISP and a bigger ISP and eventually gets uh, wherever it needs to go. But your gateway is how you're going to interface from your network to their network. Once you start getting multiple networks on your network, you'll start using the gateway uh, even on your own network. So we'll deal with networks that have, you know, 15, 20 VLANs on them. Each one of those VLANs, you're separating traffic out. So if we go back to our discussion about hubs and why they're less than ideal, if you get a bunch of printers on a network, they're going to be very chatty. They're going to advertise themselves. And, of course, every client that comes onto the network wants to get an IP address. So it asks, hey, who's the DHCP server? How do I get an IP address around this joint? And the DHCP server then responds. Once you get mm, 500, a little bit over that, clients, the timeout, the wait for that for those devices to respond becomes so long that things start timing out. And so that's when you start to segregate your network up into smaller portions. If you do that, you're going to want a way to get traffic from one side of the network segment to the other side of the network segment. If you have printers over in the main office part, you might want them to get over to the you know development department or whatever. Uh, and so your gateway can help route traffic in between those uh, those 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 individual network segments. Um, so does that kind of then answer what an access point in a modem is? Access point is a wireless way to connect to your switch. And the modem is, again, the other side of that CMTS, your cable providers, where you can think of the cable modem's port as a switch port on your ISP's network. So uh, the modem the modem isn't really it's – an, it's a term from a bygone era again. The things that we call modems aren't actually modems anymore. Cause they don't modulate and is, demodulate? No, they don't really. Um Especially like cable modems and stuff like that. They're not actually doing that because the, the purpose of the modem was to take an analog, uh, digital signal and send it over an analog, uh, infrastructure and then recompile it to digital back on the other end. And that's not really happening anymore. Like when we send, um, fiber and stuff like that, we're, we're not sending an analog signal anymore. So in a, in the strictest sense, like cable modem is the most common modem. That's out there. Like their DSL modems are still a thing, but in terms of like most people will be on cable or something else, and and they're not really modems because they're not actually doing that modulation. So it's it's a term that we use in order to not confuse normal people because the term has been around for a while. But in in <laughs> I get my internet in the from most, the modem. Exactly, in in the most. Uh, correct sense of the word it's it's we're no longer really using modems in the most correct sense of the word 
if you're on fiber, I guess it would technically be a micronode, right? Because you're taking you're taking a fiber connection and and then down converting it to copper. So it's essentially a fiber micronode. Yeah, I'm not actually sure about that. Hmm. Well, hopefully that answers your question, uh, Baku. But if not, please write back in and we'll follow up. Take another crack at it. Our fifth email comes in from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Ashan. Ashan writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Two episodes back, I asked a question about backing up sensitive data along with non-sensitive data. First of all, thank you for your response. To reply to Noah's question about the structure of my data, it's mostly a few sensitive documents along with about 200 gigs of photos and videos. Also, I am now seriously thinking about purchasing two hard drives as per Noah's suggestion. Where I live, India, I'm able to purchase these drives. Western Digital 2 terabyte, Western Digital Blue, PC hard drive 7200, RPM class SATA 6 gigabits. Or the uh, Seagate Barracuda 2 terabyte internal drive, 3.5 inch, 6 gigabits per second, 5400. I would love to know uh, if any of these make a good choice for a backup drive. If you have any suggestions, once again, thanks for the show. P.S. I would love to hear an intro to network series. You're talking about firewall, NAT, hole punching, DNS, etc. So would that be a part three, Steve? Uh, it very well could be. I think so. I think we did a part one and two. So I'll, 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 I'll say this. So if I was to stay completely agnostic to this question, I would say you might consider purchasing one of each. Get a Western Digital. Get a Seagate. Put your data on both of them. If one fails, you have another one. I would tell you that you probably want three drives total. Um, to do your backups. And I would also tell you that we have almost entirely stopped uh, purchasing and or reselling Western digital hard drives. Um, I was very, very unhappy uh, with some of the decisions Western digital made about, well, frankly lying. And on top of that, uh, we've just had better luck with Seagate. I get that that's a, um, you know, a, a specific use case and a specific example. And that's not, that's just hearsay. It's not actual data. So like I said, my agnostic answer is buy one of each and see which one you like better. Um, but if it were my choice, even though it's a slower spinning drive, we're talking about backing data up here. I don't really care that much about speed. And I would trust the Seagate drive a little bit more than I would trust the Western Digital. How about you, Steve? Uh, well, I would actually pick the 5400 RPM for backup drive specifically because it was slower. Okay. You don't want a fast backup drive, like a fast spinning backup drive. Um, if it's going to be on all the time, the slower speed generates less heat, there's less wear and tear. And we have a lot of data, not specifically on these low end drives, but on enterprise drives that show the wear and tear is significantly less when you're spinning down the drives um, as opposed to because you don't need them to be that fast. Mm. You know, you can set it and walk away. And whether it takes uh, seven hours and 30 minutes or seven hours and 15 minutes because of the extra RPMs doesn't really matter that much. So you actually might get a longer life out of the drive by having a slower one. You absolutely do. Um, and the that's part of the reason why if you look at NAS drives, for example, stuff that's meant to be on all the time, they tend to be slower spinning drives. So... Um, yeah, I and on a personal note, I buy the Seagate drives myself. Well, there you go, Baku. So, or I'm sorry, Ishan. So, uh, give that a shot. Let us know what you wind up with, and we will absolutely consider doing a third part on a networking series talking about firewalls, hole punching, DNS, etc. You know, the issue there is right. It, you start to get into very specific use cases. Um, what we've done thus far applies to any make and model router, switch, whatever. Um, once you start getting into how do you how do you, you know, deal with NAT and firewalls and stuff like that? Now you're talking about configuration of a specific platform. So a little bit of thought would be required there, but certainly something we're open to. Brule asked the questions about, hey, did you know that you can do this? You can go to Linux Ninja, or excuse me, you can go to geeklap.ninja and you can message our questions about it, questions colon linuxdelta.com and it drops the question right here in front of our face and then we answer it for you. So Brule asked, do you guys have any recommendations for a streaming device that could host MB or Jellyfin? has a similar UI to Roku apps. I love MBN Jellyfin, but I want more privacy regarding my data. I'm ruling out Roku, Chromecast, and Firestick. I dislike the front-end apps using Kodi. Are there any Raspberry Pi projects or Android OS projects that maintain a Roku Firestick UI for MB or Jellyfin? Steve, have you, what do you use for media at your house? 
Uh, I use Cody as the primary. Okay. Um, that's part of I've been quite hmm, unhappy with, with the Apple TV the more that I've had it, um, just as an aside. But on, on my Android devices, I use Cody. We have... We have Plex. We definitely use Plex, but it's more... Honestly, we use Plex on browsers a lot more than we do um, when we're just at a device. Like if we're at the projector or whatever, mm. um, it's it's Cody more than anything. So I'm in the same boat. I have looked at Jellyfin primarily because what I'm trying to do is get my kids off of YouTube and Netflix uh, and onto something local. And so the thing that has been nice about Jellyfin... And be that kind of stuff is they can have an app just like they're used to, and they click on the app and it keeps track of their well, their progress and the favorite shows and all of that kind of uh, nonsense. So, uh, as far as what device to use, I have not tried running uh, MB on a on a Raspberry Pi four, but I have run Open Elect, which is a distribution based around Kodi on a Raspberry Pi four. Arguably, is doing a lot more than um, MB because. You can, in theory, enco- do all the enc- or decoding on the back end, and you're just streaming video to a to a thing. Uh, so I suspect that a Raspberry Pi four would work well, but I've not actually tried it. The good news is, Burl, now that we've read the question on the air, somebody out there somewhere has tried this and has your answer, and they are furiously pecking away at their keyboard right this very moment to get you the answer that you need. We'll circle back to it when that answer arrives in front of our eyeballs. Thanks for writing in. Two bit. Ask the question bot again. Questions go on LinuxDelta.com. I'm looking for a small compact travel case for my Pinesole. It's a soldering iron. I have nine soldering tips for it, and I would like to be able to keep them in a case. Any suggestions? And so I have linked for you in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com, a Nova Light case. So this is what we use or what I use for my uh, soldering iron. Now, to be fair, it isn't a Pinesole soldering iron. It's a off-brand cheap Chinese battery-powered soldering iron, but should be roughly the same size, roughly the same concept, and has little elastic bands that you can put the soldering iron itself in, and then has little pockets that you can place like the tips or a little meter or little alligator clips, uh, solder sucker thingy, a little pad for wiping off the soldering iron, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so uh, check that out. We'll have a link for you available in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Linux's 5.19 kernel will help with reporting a connected device's physical location and physical status, like its vertical position, horizontal position, and if it's connected to a dock. The Microsoft 365 Defender research team has revealed several new Linux vulnerabilities, collectively dubbed Nimbus Poon. Like the dirty pipe vulnerability, they only need a local user with low capabilities to elevate privileges. But this time, the exploit seems to be much more specific and focuses on Network D Dispatcher, a system D component that handles connection status changes. The Caden Live team is happy to announce the release of version 22.04. This development cycle comes with more than 300 commits, mostly focusing on stability and polishing, ranging from packaging all the way up to user interface enhancements. Red Hat Enterprise Linux 9 beta is out. Actual a local first personal finance system that's been in development for over four years has gone fully open source. In the battle over right to repair, open source tractors offer an alternative. Proponents say an open source farm equipment ecosystem is the key to a future of more innovative, reliable, repairable, and environmentally adaptable tools. For many years, some users of Ubuntu have asked for a rolling release model. Now there's a new distribution called Rolling Rhino that has succeeded in doing just that. There are doubts about the future of the new read-write NTFS driver in the Linux kernel, because the author is not maintaining the code, or even answering his emails. The code appears to be orphaned. It took a long time and a lot of work to get Paragon's software NTFS 3 driver merged into the Linux kernel, and it finally happened with the kernel release 5.15 in October of 2021, but has received no maintenance since then. Bloomberg has open-sourced its Python memory profile called Memray, Memory can track memory allocations in Python code, including native extensions and in the Python interpreter itself. The Open Source Security Foundation announces the creation of a tool that can be used to scan popular open source repositories for malicious packages. The package analysis project was touted by Google, which is a member of the OpenSSF and has worked closely with the foundation on a variety of security-related projects. The program performs dynamic analysis of all packages uploaded to popular open source repositories and catalogs the results. And finally, in open source funding news, 
The open source company DeepSet Labs has obtained $14 million to power plain English enterprise search. Armo, the Tel Aviv-based company behind Kubescape, the popular open source Kubernetes security platform, has announced that it has raised $30 million in Series A funding. So, Caden Live has come out with a fresh release, 2204, and this is really fantastic. So, a few years ago, we hired a uh, a creative person to deal with some of our media stuff and sat down and asked him, said, what do you have experience with? And he said, oh, I've used uh, Adobe Premiere almost exclusively, and I really like it, and I know a workflow. And I said, well, why don't you give Lightworks a shot? So, he sat down and used Lightworks for a little bit and said, eh, not for me. doesn't work. Very difficult, very hard to get my head wrapped around and isn't great. And I said, well, here's a Linux machine. And so you can put whatever you, whatever will run on it. So there's DaVinci Resolve, there's this, there's that, there's that, whatever. Go see if you can find something that works better for you. And he came back with Caden Live. And I thought to myself, that's a weird thing to come back with. Like, that's been around for a while and I hadn't had a great experience with Caden Live up until that point. But the more he used it, the more he liked it. He said, this is exactly like Premiere. And I'm very comfortable with Premiere, and I sit down at this, and this works really, really well. And so over the past few years, I have switched from using Lightworks almost exclusively to using Caden Live almost exclusively. And they have they, they came out with this latest release. They have polished so many things, hundreds of commits that have come out with this new version. So Caden Live now is able to run on Apple's M1 architecture, which means that if you're if you are a Mac person and you're purchasing a new Mac, you have the opportunity to run free and open source software on your Mac and then having that cross-compatible across Mac, Windows, and Linux. has support for the full uh, color range 10-bit on all platforms. Uh, Caden Live also automatically offers to transcode variable frame rate videos on an editing-friendly format. So this is one of the downfalls that I ran into Lightworks all the time. If you had different video formats that had different frame rate rates, you weren't able to edit them together. And so you had to do some FFmpeg magic to get them all set up um, so you could edit them all in one project. Well, that's no more if you're using Caden Live. Uh, they also have some filters, uh, blur lift gamma gain a vignette a mirror effects and also now slide slice threading which improves rendering speeds they've also introduced what they're calling the effects template in, in version 2204 now the effects template are essentially custom effects but the nice thing about this is you're able to share these effects or pull these effects to and from community members through KDE store and so you can download directly into Kden live or you can contribute an effect the store is already open, and you're welcome to contribute your effects. So make sure to check out the latest version of Caden Live. And if you're looking for a non-linear video editor, uh, I highly suggest you take a look at Caden Live. Rolling Rhino, you heard it in the uh, Linux Newswire. So Ubuntu, for a long time, has gotten criticized for not having up-to-date software packages. Indeed, just this week, I was working with an Ansible deploy system and went to run my Ansible playbook and I get a message back and it was actually pretty brutal. It said, update your software to run a newer version of Ansible or use a Linux distribution that has sane, up-to-date software. And I thought to myself, man, we don't really pull any punches there. Just call it like we see it, I guess. Um, but Rolling Rhino, which has been around for a little while, uh, has a new release out, and so the idea here is that Ubuntu is a little too slow, and that causes software to fall behind in terms of updates and libraries. And so uh, this version of Ubuntu, dubbed Rolling Rhino, uh, changes that. The distribution has its own update utility called Rhino Update, and it will bypass some of the default aptitude functionality and grab things like a newer Linux kernel, newer software packages, even if they're not on the development branch just yet. Now, you can do this one of two ways. The first thing that you can do is you can go to the daily development build of your favorite Ubuntu flavor, and you can uh, be on an actual Ubuntu branch, such as Zubuntu, Lubuntu, and then you apply a rolling Rhino patch to the ISO. And we'll have a link for you to that patch available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, if you're lazy like I am, you can just go to their site, rollingrhino.org slash download, and you can download a prepackaged, ooh, 
looks like their link isn't working at the moment. Uh, but you can download a prepackaged ISO from the project's website when it works and run the installer as if it were just any other distribution that you downloaded an ISO flashed to a flash drive and run. And lastly, uh, the NTFS uh, that was put out by Paragon Software. Uh, so this strikes an interest with me because back when this came out, uh, we talked about this on the show. And we talked about the, the, the reaction from Linux developers. They contributed this thing and they looked at it and said, hey, guys, really fantastic that you contributed an NTFS read-write thing to the kernel. It's 27,000 lines of code. It's a little much for us to go through and review this. How are we supposed to do that? Well, that was last year, I think. Skate forward a year. Now, you've got this 27,000 line monstrosity that's been merged into the kernel. And guess what? Paragon Software, nowhere to be found. They don't respond to emails. They're not updating the code. So now somebody else is going to have to go through and figure all of this out. And... There are th- three simultaneous frustrations here. The first is the fact that most of the drives that you purchase, if you just go into a Best Buy, you know, or an Office Max or an Office Depot or whatever, and grab a USB drive and plug it into your computer, chances are it's going to be default formatted for NTFS, which means even if you, the technical person, are wise enough to plug it in and say, I'm going to refat this as extended fat or, N- or you know, extended for whatever, that's great. But all of your people, all the people that you work with, they go out, they buy this NTFS drive, it works great on Windows, it works okay on Mac, and then you pull it into to Linux and potentially have this issue, right? So uh, that's frustration number one, that we're still using NTFS and it's become such a standard and we don't have a really great way to do this on, on Linux. Frequently, I will find a drive that's NTFS and it will get locked um, because it didn't get, the computer didn't get shut down, right? And then you've got to jump through some hoops to get it to work. Uh, so that's frustration number one. Frustration number two is this is exactly why the maintainers of the kernel were upset about this 27,000 lines of code just being dumped on them. If it's not there and you don't have a track record of creating and maintaining the software that's in the Linux kernel, this just can't be. And there's a high expectation of quality, and that goes down the tubes when you have stuff like this. So um, that's frustration number two. And then frustration number three is, if they were going to do this, why not have a plan to maintain it? Why submit all of this into the kernel and then just abandon it? You had to know, particularly after people kind of called that this was going to happen, that this was going to happen. You would think that you would put some thought into your PR, into your reputation, into your you know technical plan and say, well, here's why we're going to, to, to continue to modify it, or here's why we're not going to modify it and maintain it. Uh, I said last, but really last, is Unity. After six years, the the developers have released a new version of Unity Desktop. So this is Unity 7.6. It's out for public testing. Um, and it's pretty slick. They've made some changes to it. It looks a little more modern, a little bit more slick. Overall, the design is a little bit flatter, um, but has the same general look of, of traditional Unity. The docs menus... Uh, and tooltips have received a fresh modern look. They've managed to decrease the RAM usage in Unity 7. And so you'll notice that with the latest version of Ubuntu Unity with 2020, 22.04, you'll see a lower RAM usage by about 700, 800 megabits. So decent improvement. And Unity 7's shell source code has been migrated entirely to GitLab. So the standalone testing Unity 7 launcher has been fixed and the buggy tests have been disabled, improving the build time and, of course, making it much shorter. So if you were a fan of Unity, and I certainly was, you can check that out uh, and see if it's something you'd want to live on. Um, Personally speaking, I think as much as I liked Unity, as much as I miss Unity, there are probably better desktop environments that are, 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 are better maintained, but alas, something you could do. Hey, Southeast Linux Fest is coming back in full Four. So we talked about this last week, but we're going to mention it every week probably until Southeast Linux Fest. I couldn't be more excited to get back to conferences. I miss them so much. Uh, it's going to be June 10th through 12th. So it'll be that weekend in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, uh, at the moment, there are still some mask mandates in effect for Charlotte, North Carolina. However, all of these mask mandates are set to expire well before self. So at self, we don't anticipate any mandates being 
in effect, which means self is not going to have a mask mandate of any kind. If you want to wear a mask, you are welcome to do so. It's your personal preference. The other thing, self very much believes that vaccines and uh, medical conditions are between you and your doctor. So the decision is between your and your healthcare professional, whether you want to get vaccinated or not, not self is not enforcing or, uh, or asking about vaccines. Having said that, self encourages you to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19, particularly if you have comorbidity factors, if you're in an at-risk group or just want peace of mind. Uh, with that, the call for speakers is now open. An early decision for acceptance will be made uh, on 5-7 through 5-14 and a final deadline to submit your talks by 5-21. So you've got a couple of weeks to get it in. Um, they're going to close that down on uh, not not this coming Saturday, two weeks from this coming Saturday. Uh, so if you have any interest in, ta- in giving a talk at Southeast Linux Fest, I cannot encourage you enough to attend this Linux Fest. Having been to almost all of them, I will tell you that I think Self is probably one of the best ones out there. If you've never been to a Linux Fest before, I would highly suggest starting with Southeast Linux Fest because it's focused primarily on relationships and, and, and building friendships and community and less on corporate stuff. Uh, one of the best conferences out there. I will absolutely be there. Steve, are you planning on going to self this year? I would have loved to, but literally every commitment that I could have had in June falls on the first two <laughs> weeks. So I'm actually going to be out of the country. Okay. Well, enjoy your trip out of the country. I will be at self Linuxing it up and having a great time. I'll, I'll report back to you and let you know what you missed. I probably will hop on and listen to uh, some of the streams if I get a chance. Yeah, we will definitely be streaming all of the conference. Uh, we'll be streaming some of the talks. We're going to have interviews. Um, it is going to be a fantastic, uh, a fantastic party. It's going to be a good time. So June t- 10th, 11th, and 12th, make sure to join us in sh- in in, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and you can learn more at southeastlinuxfest.org. Our community night. This is we've been doing this the first Thursday of every month, and essentially the idea is to allow the community to come in and ask questions and we get a bunch of nerds in a room and we just help you solve problems and fix things and just generally talk about nerdy things so this thursday is coming up with our monthly community night this week we're going to walk you through setting up your own matrix server matrix has onboarded millions and millions and millions of users just in the past year alone and so we've gotten to a point where we think it's really important that you know how to leverage these tools and so we've had an uptick of clients asking us to help them onboard to ems we've had an uptick of clients asking us to help them host their own matrix server so we are going to help you do that we're going to walk you through step by step what it takes to get an entire matrix deployment up I think it'll take us less than like 10 or 15 minutes to do it with the Ansible deploy script, but your mileage may vary. But if you have questions, if you have thoughts, uh, this is the time to get them answered. And we're going to give away uh, some credit to DigitalOcean. So some of you aren't even going to have to pay to host your own matrix server. You can do it for free. We're going to buy it for you uh, for the first little bit so you can get a handle on what that's about. So that's going to be this Thursday at 6 p.m. That's a pretty slick thing. You've planned out your next, what, five or six meetings having to deal with the fallout of supporting this? <laughs> That's good, right? we got to generate the content, Steve. <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, join us this Thursday, May 5th at 6 p.m. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. Before we go, follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow, at Colonel Linux, at Linux Ovens. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.